Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Today we are in Genesis chapter 22, uh, chapter 22:20 through 23:20. Um, and as we consider these words of the Lord, remember we are transitioning um, ultimately to Jacob, um, but we'll transition through Isaac to Jacob beginning today. So hear the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 22, beginning in verse 20. Sometime later, Abraham was told, Milcah is also a mother. She has borne sons to your brother Nahor. Uz, the firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. Milcah bore these eight sons to Abraham's brother Nahor. His concubine, whose name was Ruma, also had sons. Teba, Gaham, Nahash, and Ma'akah. And we can see a uh, celebration in these verses in that names have changed over the years, and I am not named any of those. <laughs> Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land of the, the Hittites. He said to them, if you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf. So he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belonged to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of his city. No, my Lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in their hearing, listen to me, if you will. I will pay the price of the field. Accept it for me so I can bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, Listen to me, my lord, the land is worth 400 shekels of silver. But what is that between me and you? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephron's field in, in Machpelah near Mamre, and both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, as we look at this, this account of a real estate transaction, we ask that you show us your glory in the midst of this account. In all the legal terms of the day, in the bargaining 
back and forth for the price of the land, we ask that you show us your glory and have us see what you would have us see today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned uh, before we read, this is a transitional account. We're going to work our way um, ultimately to Jacob. Jacob will take up most of the rest of the book of Genesis. Um, But we have three chapters here that move us from uh, Abraham and Sarah to uh, the life of Isaac and Jacob, ultimately. Um, we We know this because we're introduced in the very beginning of this particular passage. We are introduced to Rebecca. I don't know if you noticed in the midst of all those names, the, the, the brother of Abraham, Nahor, um, and his 12 children, which, by the way, will kind of parallel the 12 children of Jacob. There are eight children by Nahor's wife and then four children by his concubines. We see in the life of Jacob with the, the parenting, the, the, the siring of the 12 patriarchs. Um, we'll see that eight of them are are brought about through his wife and wives, and four of them were brought about through concubines, so there's a little bit of parallelism there. But in the middle of this, we're told of a woman who was the daughter of Bethuel named Rebekah. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about Rebekah next week, but Rebekah is, uh, will ultimately end up being the wife of Isaac. And so we are introduced here um, initially in the end of chapter 22 before we consider the death of Sarah. Now, as we consider the death of Sarah, I just kind of want to outline for us here what we see going on. Abraham, at at some point in his life, has moved from the southern area down near Beersheba. He's moved back up to Mamre, where he met God and the two angelic messengers, where God said, you know, a year from now, Sarah will conceive a son and you'll call his name Isaac. And Sarah laughed at God and God said, why did you laugh? And she said, I didn't laugh. He said, but you did. What's impossible with man is not impossible with God. And so Abraham's back up in this area, and Sarah has died. This, uh, Isaac would be about 37 years old at this point. Um, Sarah has died at the, at, the, at the age of 127 years old. And they are living in an area where there are people called the sons of Heth or the Hittites. These are probably not the Hittites we learned about in world history. This would have been about two to 400 years prior to the Hittite Empire. They actually have Jewish names. They're a little bit further south in Palestine than the Hittites were, but these might be forerunners of that particular group of people. And this account for us here is actually a legal account. It's almost like a a written form of something called a dialogue contract. When I took some business courses in my undergrad studies, uh, one of those was a business law course. And of course, in business law, what do you learn about? You learn about contracts. That's the ultimate in business law is the contract. And at the time, I graduated from college in 1991, at the time, verbal contracts were still legally binding. And some of you in this room can remember where if you agreed upon a price and you shook your hands on it, it was written in stone. That's what we have a picture of here. We have a picture of this verbal dialogue as two men stand face to face before a group of witnesses And it's a real estate transaction is basically what it is. They negotiate over the price of a land. So Abraham goes to the city of or to the people of the Hittites, the sons of Heth, and he says, look, I need a burial plot in the land. And they say, by all means, bury your wife wherever you want to pick one of our tombs and bury your wife in it. 
And he says, no, I don't just want access to a tomb. I want a piece of property in the land. Now remember, God has promised to give Abraham this land. But Abraham is a stranger in the land, he says here. He's a sojourner in the land. And he says, I want a permanent piece of property that I can deed not only to myself, but to, to my family. I can pass it down to my family into perpetuity. And so they, he says, in fact, I would like the cave in this area called Machpelah that belongs to Ephraim, Ephraim, son of Johan, or Johar, and I want the land that goes around it. And then Ephron and Abraham go through this negotiation process. Ephron kind of goes, okay, I'm willing to sell it. And he says, I'm willing to sell it by saying, hey, just take it as a gift. And then Abraham does his part of the negotiation and says, no, I, I don't want it as a gift. I want to actually pay for it. And Ephron goes, well, you know what? If I was going to sell the property, I'd probably sell it for about the weight of 400 shekels of silver. And Abraham at this point does not uh, negotiate. He pays the price that Ephron um, gives to him. Now, uh, that sounds odd to us because even today, if we're buying or selling a house or a piece of property, you, you never take the first offered price. And if you're the one being the selling, you never take the first counter offer either. There's this back and forth until you reach it upon an agreed price. And often it's somewhere in between, almost dead center of the initial acting price, asking price and the initial counter offer. It'd just be easier if we could meet in the middle without all the back and forth. But hey, that's part of the process, is it not? It was even more of a part of the process and still is today in the Middle East. It was more of a part of the process then. But Abraham does not negotiate the price. Why would Abraham not negotiate the price? It's because he wanted an irrevocable contract. He did not want Ephron coming back to him later on and saying, you know what, I really don't like the way this cell worked out because you twisted and tricked me into a price that I didn't want to give. Abraham did not want any type of claim upon him and upon this land that he had bought. He wanted it to be his, his without renegotiation, his without counterclaim, his to pass on to his um, descendants. And any other different type of negotiation, any negotiation with the price would have removed that option from him. And so he had this piece of property. He had this piece of land within the promised land. And so today, as we consider this legal document that's recorded for us here in the scriptures to remind the Israelites that, that yes, there was a piece of land that there was theirs. In fact, Jacob is buried in this cave. Joseph is buried later on in this cave. His bones are brought back with Moses and the Israelites to be buried in this cave 400 years later. I want us to see three things about God in this. I want us to see God's ordinary providence. That's God's ordinary providence. I want us to remember or see how Abraham has remembered God's promises. And I want us to look at the idea as the people of God, as strangers and aliens in this land. The first is God's ordinary providence. As we read through this account, as I discussed it, who's missing from the written version of this account? God is. This, this 20, verse, 20 verses in chapter 23 is very much like the book of Esther where um, God is not mentioned once and yet we can see Him working. 
Chapter 5 of the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, talks about God's providence and it defines God's providence as His direct, uh, or it says, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest to the least by His most holy, wise providence, according to His infallible knowledge and the free and immutable counsel of His own will, to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And basically what it says there is that nothing that happens, nothing that is said, nothing that is done in this earth by any person, by any animal, by any molecule or atom happens outside of the providence of God. And it all works together to bring about His glorious purpose and will. And then later on in that same chapter 5, he says this in paragraph 3. What does he say in paragraph 3? He says, God in His ordinary providence makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at His pleasure. So God makes use of means. What does that mean? How many of here, how many, has anybody in this room known or experience personally smallpox? No, we haven't, have we? I've got this weird puckered little circular spot on the back of one of my shoulders. I forget where it is. My dad had one in his, in the, in his, right up there in his shoulder and his bicep there. It's called a smallpox vaccination. My children don't have them. In fact, people, Michelle may not have one either. People just a couple years younger than me do not have smallpox vaccinations. Why? Because smallpox has been eradicated in our world. Now, to somebody living in Abraham's time, that would seem to be a miracle. But for us, we can look at a history of people who have uh, looked at smallpox, who have tested vaccines, who have tested cures, who have done all these things and have gone through a process of bringing us to a place where in 2018, the year of our Lord, we do not have smallpox in our world. Those are ordinary means. How many of us, when we're sick, when we have a bacterial infection, go to the doctor and get something called antibiotics? Most of us here do. That is God's ordinary means. We pray for God's healing of sickness. We pray for God to work things out for us. But oftentimes we discount God's ordinary providence through means. Reminds me of the story of the guy, there was a flood coming and the waters were raising and he was sitting on his front porch as the water was about three or four inches high and this guy, somebody comes by in a truck and says, come on. And he says, no, I'm waiting for the Lord to save me. The water continues to go up. He's, He's in the second floor of his house and a boat comes by. And he and says, come on, come with us to safety. He says, nope, I'm waiting on the Lord to save me. He ends up later on on his roof as the water is up around the eaves and a helicopter comes by and hovers and drops a, a ladder and says, come along, we'll take you to safety. And he says, nope, I'm waiting God to save me. He gets to heaven. God looks at him and greets him. And the guy says, I, I waited for you to save me. Where were you? And he said, well, I sent you a truck, a boat and a helicopter. What more did you need? <laughs> God works through ordinary means. And that's what we see here. God's not listed in this, but God is beginning to keep His promise to Abraham to give him a permanent place in the land through a real estate contract. 
through a legal proceeding, through a negotiation that to us seems boring when we think about it. If I had told you I was going to read you a legal document today, each and every one of you, your eyes would have rolled to the back of your head and you'd have fallen asleep on me. But God works through ordinary providence. God works through, through means. Now, yes, there are times where, as the, as the confession says, He is free to work without means, above means, and against means at His pleasure. But 99.99% of the time, He works through means. He works through everyday occurrences and everyday life. And we forget that sometimes. We forget in the midst of our busyness that, Lord, I, I, I need rest. Well, God says, sign up for one less activity and take a nap. God, I need money. Go get a job. God works through ordinary means and ordinary providence. The second thing I want us to see after God's ordinary providence is that we have a means here by which Abraham is going to remember promises. And not only Abraham, everybody who follows him. Abraham wasn't merely looking for a tomb. He was looking for a piece of land. He was looking for a place that he could pass on to his descendants that they could come back to even over that 400 year period of time that they would be in Egypt. These people could think back and say, hey, there's something waiting for us somewhere else. There is the fulfillment of promises to our forefather Abraham waiting for us in this land that is called the promised land. And we own it. We, the children of Abraham, own this into perpetuity. It is ours forever. It is our place to remember. There's a mosque actually set up at this place in Machpelah now where the Muslims use this to remember. The Israelites even consider this their second most holy site because it reminds them that that land is theirs. It had been promised to them by God. God had promised them the promised land and they view this as their second most holy site, second only to the Wailing Wall. This is a marker. This is a, a remembrance for them. Jacob, when he goes to Egypt, makes his sons promise, take me back and bury me where my grandfather is buried. Joseph tells the Israelites, Hey, in 400 years, when you go back to Israel, take my body, take my bones, take my remains and bury me where my father and my grandfather is buried, because that is where I belong. And God gave this idea. He, he wove this idea of symbols and remembrance into the life of the Israelites. He gave them the Passover to remind them that death had passed over them because of the blood of the slaughtered lamb. He gave them the sacrificial system to remind them that sin could be atoned for. He gave them the Feast of Booths to remind them of His provision for them in the wilderness. And He's done that for us as well. Next week after the sermon, I'm going to descend these steps and stand behind this table here. I'm going to read the passage from 1 Corinthians where Jesus says, do this in remembrance of Me. What do we remember when we celebrate the Lord's Supper? We remember that the perfect Passover lamb has given his life for us, has shed his blood so that the ultimate death, life separated from God in hell, can pass over us. We remember that as the perfect lamb, we don't do sacrifices anymore. 
Because the blood and atonement has been bought once for all, our sin has been placed on Him so that His righteousness could be placed upon us. We remember what Jesus has done for us. We remember that Jesus has fulfilled the promises of God, that promise that we were told in Genesis chapter 3, I will send the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Death and sin and Satan has been defeated once and for all. And in this table, we remember that. Abraham bought a piece of property so that his descendants would remember the promises of God to have a place in the land. And finally, we see the idea of the stranger and the alien. After Sarah has died, after he has grieved for her for a period of time, he gets up, he goes to the people, the Hittites, and he says, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Those are two words in the original language, alien and stranger, that, that kind of give us an idea of one concept. It's the idea of resident alien. Now, I'm not talking UFO aliens, you know, no, you know, no Twilight Zone, anything like that. But I'm talking about the idea of somebody who lives in a land. He's not a citizen of any of the countries or cities in that land. But he lives in a land and he has certain rights. He has certain responsibilities. He has certain respect, but he's not allowed to be a full citizen through, through ownership, especially. He's asking a big favor here. He says, I have no right to ownership of property in your land. But can I buy a piece of property? And he is given, he's blessed by God. They call him a mighty prince, which did not denote any authority. It was just a, it was just a title that showed respect, that showed that they saw him as somebody important and powerful. But he was not allowed to own land. And yet God blessed him in the ownership of the land. This is actually a theme that is picked up again for us in the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 25, you can turn there if you would like, it's the, it's the, uh, it's the giving of the law regarding the Sabbath year. Every seven years, the land was to remain uh, untilled, unfarmed, so that it could rest, so that it could rebound from being farmed for seven years. And every 50 years... People's debts were forgiven. If I had had to sell my property to somebody in order to feed my family, the property reverted to me. If I had sold myself into slavery in order to feed my family, I was given my freedom back in that 50th year, in that year of Jubilee. And God said why it would happen in verse 23. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23. God says, The land must not be sold permanently, because the land is mine, this is God speaking, the land is mine, and you are but aliens and tenants. My tenants. It's the same two words that are translated aliens and strangers here. God is saying, yes, I have given you this land, but it's my land, and I am letting you live in it as resident aliens. Everything I give to you is mine, and you use it according to how I say. And the land does not leave the family because it's my land. Many people will tell us this is just kind of an aside, but many people will tell us that God is against personal property. 
No, he's not. He is very much for personal property because he gives us things to steward, to use for his glory and for his honor. And he gives them to us and expects us to use them in a certain way for his glory and for his honor. But I want us to see that even the Israelites in their own promised land were merely resident aliens taking care of God's property. But listen to these words from Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and also in verse 17. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And then on to verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. We as the people of God are strangers and aliens in this world. We're pilgrims on a journey. Paul, uh, in his letters, talks about how the Exodus was not only a historical event, it's a picture of the Christian life. We have been freed from slavery to Satan and to sin by the work of Jesus Christ, and we are on our way to the promised land. We... We are not citizens of this world. I I may be an American citizen, but more importantly, I am a citizen of the city whose foundations rest in God. My ultimate allegiance is not to my country, not even to my family. It is to God. Because He has pulled me out of this country and He says, you are my citizen. You are my son. You are no longer a citizen of this world. You are a stranger and an alien. We await a time when our citizenship in heaven is made full, when, yes, that city whose foundations are in God descends and reside here when it is converted to the new heavens and the new earth. But I am not tied to this world. I am a stranger. I am an alien. So we see today in this passage, we see God's ordinary providence and how He works through means most of the time. We see that God has given us ways in which we can remember His promises and how He has fulfilled them. And we have seen how God calls us to be strangers and aliens in this world. I recently read a a quote from John Piper that says this, The world does not need cool Christians who are culturally saturated. It needs exiles with the scent of heaven and the aroma of Christ. We are called to live in a world, but we are not called to be of the world. We're called to affect the world with the gospel. We're called to work for the restoration and work for justice in this world, to work for the salvation of those who need salvation. But we're just passing through. We're on a pilgrimage from here to the celestial city, as John Bunyan says in his classic work, Pilgrim's Progress. And the temptation for us as Christians is to want to fit in with the people around us. I don't like being weird. I really think oh, many times I come by my weirdness naturally. But part of yeah, Luke is over there nodding his head and agreeing with me. I appreciate that, son. <laughs> but part of the weirdness is because I am a stranger and alien in this world. And you know what? I don't like it. I don't like sticking out. I don't like being different. I want to fit in just like everybody else. But in a world that says, look, you know what, whatever you whatever you want to define for yourself as truth is truth, whatever pleasure you want to pursue, you pursue it. I'm called to live by a higher truth. 
I'm called to live by a higher standard. I am reminded as a stranger and an alien that my idea of truth is broken and warped by sin. And there is one who has given me his truth to live by. In a world that says, pursue whatever pleasure you want, I'm called to live a life of temperance. Not being drunk on wine or drugs or pleasures or sex or whatever it is, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to pursue a life of radical holiness and radical trust. But I don't do it on my own strength. I do it because Christ has justified me. He has declared me as righteous. He has said that I am reconciled to God through His work and I will give you the Holy Spirit to pursue to live in a way that seeks to mirror God's glory in this sin-darkened world. And we're left today with the question, as a stranger and an alien in this world, do you live with the scent of heaven and the aroma of Christ? Let us pray. Our God and Father above, help us to answer that question honestly. Most of the times I don't. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, I strive. I've been climbing the mountain towards your holiness for many, many years, and yet I see that sometimes it feels like I'm no closer to the top than I was when I started. And yet, and yet as John Newton said, by the grace of God, I am not where I was. Help me to pursue, to live a life that reflects the scent of heaven and the aroma of Christ. Help me to pursue a life that shines your glory, not my own, but your glory into this sin-darkened world so that they might see you, not me, but you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.